Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. As we come to Acts chapter 16 and verse 11, the passage, the verses we're looking at divide easily into two segments. The first segment has to do with a woman who was saved, and the second segment has to do with a girl who was delivered. So let's look at, first of all, a woman who was saved, Acts chapter 16, verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. So Paul is going from Asia Minor over to Europe. From there, we traveled to Philippi. So you have in your Bible the book of Philippians. That is this place, these people, this is the first convert that's going to be in the church at Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. It's interesting. A lot of scholars say, you know, at that time, Philippi wasn't necessarily, Luke is writing this. Luke, many scholars believe, is from Philippi, and so like um, he's like giving it a big shout out, right? It's kind of like I saw the little shirt in a shop in Springfield that said, Springfield the epicenter of awesome. So, um, yeah, that's what you do when you're from a town. You, 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 you celebrate that town. Here's Luke doing the same. And we stayed there several days. Now, I want to show you the map here so you get a sense. Paul, remember, at the start of the chapter, he's down here in Asia Minor. He goes up into Lystra, picks up Timothy there. They make this 590-mile journey, so it's months. Along the way, he tries to go down into Asia, to Ephesus, and we looked at that last time, and the Holy Spirit stopped him. Then he he goes to Mysia, tries to go up into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus said no. We don't know what that looks like. We talked about some things relative to that. He goes on to Troas, and as he's at Troas, he has a dream at night or a vision at night of a Macedonian man saying, come and help us. Some people believe that person was Luke himself. We don't know that for sure, but we know he was from Macedonia, and many believe from Philippi. So what we just read, they're going to cross there, the Aegean Sea. They're going to go over into um, Philippi, Neapolis, and, and there they are going to begin preaching. Now, typically what Paul would do is he'd go to a synagogue, and he would begin to preach there. There would be both Jewish people and Gentile people who were God-fearers, people interested in the Jewish God. He began to tell them about Jesus. Some would believe, some wouldn't believe, and that would then form the nucleus of the church in that city. But when he goes to Philippi, there are, there are no synagogues. So what he does, Jewish tradition said, if there was not a synagogue, and, and we assume that either there was not a synagogue because the Roman authorities there were, were anti-Jewish, because a lot of, this is a big town, typically would have had a Jewish synagogue. So it's odd that it doesn't, but Jewish tradition said if there's not a synagogue, then the faithful were to meet under the open sky by a sea or river. So right outside of Philippi, about a mile from the city gate, is a river, and so Paul goes to the river, and when he goes to the river, it's there that he discovers a a group of women who are meeting there. Verse 13. 
On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. So they go there because they know, hey, if there are any believers, they're going to be at that place. Verse 14 says, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. So she has a an affinity for the, the Jewish God. She worships the Jewish God, but like Cornelius in Acts 10, who is a Roman centurion, they are not born again. They've not heard the full gospel. They've not heard about Jesus dying for their sin. So what happens is Paul tells them about the Lord, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the message. Here's what we know. We don't know a lot about her. We know she's wealthy. We know that it is very unusual for a woman in her day to, to have, we know she has a large house because Paul and his team are going to stay there probably for months. So she's got her own, her own people who live there with her, her servants and the members of her household, and then she has Paul and his team there. We also assume, and I mean, this is, I don't know that you really care to know this. Some do. Uh, I do. I'm interested in history. We also know that she is probably divorced because a single woman would not have been able to acquire what she acquired. So she may have been divorced. She may have been widowed. Uh, either way, she was married. She's not married right now. And she has a business. And God opens her heart to the gospel. Verse 15 is very straight up. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. What I want you to notice there is, in the book of Acts, unlike a lot of church traditions today, you get saved, you get baptized. I mean, before she ever invites them to her house, she embraces the gospel, and immediately she is baptized. It's important for people to follow that. You see, you'll see it similar, something similar in Acts chapter 16, just a little later. Paul is in jail, and at midnight there's an earthquake, and the jailer's gonna take his life. Paul says, Don't, we're gonna look at it. And the jailer says, What what do I have to do to be saved? Paul shares the gospel with him, and it says, at that hour of the night, he and his family were baptized. So before he cleans up Paul's wounds on his back, before he feeds Paul breakfast, before he does anything, he's saved and he is baptized. Now all of that to say, baptism is not something that you wait to do. Baptism is not something you have to understand before you do it. So a lot of people are like, well, I just, I just want to make sure I understand what I'm doing. It doesn't matter if you understand it. You see, you get saved, you get baptized, and then you find out, oh, this is what happened to me when I was baptized. I didn't know anything about an open heaven, but I sure experienced it. And then later, when I learned about it, I was like, oh, that's what happened to me. That was awesome, right? Here's what happens when a person says, well, I don't think I'm ready. I don't think I want to. What you've done at that point, and I'm saying this in kindness, but it's a real concern to me. What you've done essentially is said, listen, I just do in following Christ what I feel like doing. And if I don't feel like doing it, I don't do it which is an obedience optional Christianity, which is 
honestly an aberrant form of Christianity. When we embrace Jesus as our King, He's our, our, our Savior, He's our King, He's our Lord, and we commit our lives to following Him, and the first thing He asks us to do is to be baptized. I just want to encourage you today, if you've not been baptized, it's time to get baptized. It's a great day to get baptized, and you watch what God will do in your life when you open your heart to him and you say, Jesus, if you say it, I'm doing it. That settles it. Watch what God will do in blessing your life the way he will work in your life. She was baptized, and now it is the start of the Philippian church, and, and it's taking off. And here's the thing we know about the Philippian church. We know it was a great church. We know it was a generous church. We know that it was a church that funded a lot of Paul's ministry. And here's something just on the side. Luke stays in Philippi. He does at the end of Acts, he says, they left. He's not with them. Right now it's we. We did this. We did that. He is going to stay in Philippi. A lot of people, not, I would say some commentators believe he and Lydia got married. So there's a little love story in there and uh, that he stayed on and helped run the uh, purple cloth business and uh, funded the uh, Apostle Paul's ministry. So just a little trivia there. So a woman is saved. She and all of her household. She gets saved and everybody with her comes to Christ. That leads me to the second thing I want you to notice, and I moved rather fast because I want to spend a little more time with this. A girl delivered. And when we talk about deliverance, let me just give you a definition here so we're all on the same page. Using the authority of Jesus to deliver people from demonic activity in their lives. Now, again, I'm not going to be able to give you everything we talked about on Wednesday night, but let me just say this. Not all deliverance is casting a demon or demons out of a person. Deliverance could include sensing a sickness in another person is caused by an evil spirit. And the Gospels recognize that that is a reality. There is some sickness that is demonically induced. And you see that in the ministry of Jesus. He rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And he was instantly healed. We read of the woman in Luke chapter 13, verse 10, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. The, to, to the physical appearance, she got back problems. Jesus knew it was the root cause was an evil spirit. So there are times that people's illness is demonically induced. You say, how do I know if it is? How? Listen, that's where when people are praying for you, um, that's when you, that can be a moment of discovery where a person who's praying for you, before you pray for somebody, I think a really good question to ask is, Jesus, how do you want me to pray for this need? And I've had times, I've talked about it, where there were people and I felt I didn't know them. Uh, they asked me to pray for them. And I felt in that moment, the cause of the illness they were facing was demonic. You say, how do you pray in that? You, you do it just like Jesus did it. You rebuke the evil spirit. So you're not sitting there praying, I want to be kind with you on this, but sometimes we, we, you know, 
because we have a hammer in our toolbox, we think everything's a nail. So praise God that sometimes we ask the Lord to do things. Sometimes you have to command some things. Sometimes you have to rebuke the spirit. So like I was, there was a couple that had narcolepsy and, and they asked me to pray for them. As soon as I bowed my head, it was at the prayer meeting. Um, we're just standing over there and, and immediately I felt the Lord say, this is an evil spirit. So you don't know the people. It's dark. You're like, huh, I, I wonder how this is going to go for them. Um, because we always have to be more concerned about people than ourselves, right? We're thinking about people and about the Lord. So I'm thinking, well, man, they don't. They don't know me. This could be their first time. I, I mean, I don't know. So if I'm rebuking an evil spirit, you know, how's that set with them? And then at the same time, I'm thinking, but if they're not healed, that's no good. So what would you rather have? Would you rather be offended and healed? Or would you rather not be offended and not be healed? I mean, it comes down to that. So just gently, I, I just said, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke this evil spirit that is causing this narcolepsy. You have to leave this man alone in Jesus' name. And he was instantly healed. I know that because they came to me on Sunday and told me, I mean, his life's totally different. So sometimes that's the way deliverance works. Sometimes deliverance is a, can be as simple as a parent. Um, one of our campus pastors, his daughter was having night terror several nights in a row, and he realized this is not normal. Where did this come from? And so all of a sudden, he, you know, he and his wife came to the conclusion, this, there's demonic activity going on. So he grabbed his daughter, went into her room, and said, whatever spirit is here, look at me. Get your eyes off of my daughter. I am the head of this house. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and in the name of Jesus, and in the authority of his name, I command you never to bother her again. You have to leave. She never had another night terror. Now listen, I'm just saying, you know, and there are some of you, and you're skeptical on this whole thing, and... I'm just saying, let's, let's follow the Word of God. Let's see what it, what it says. And let's not get our understanding of the demonic from Hollywood. Movies like The Exorcist or, or The Ride or The Conjuring or The Omen or all, all, the, all of the movies that are out there that tend to influence people's thinking on how this works. So uh, deliverance can be you taking authority over a, a spirit that is harassing your family. It could be you recognizing that there's been a curse put on you or your family and taking responsibility for that and rebuking the powers of darkness. Sometimes, though, it does involve casting out a demon. And that is what Paul did in Acts chapter 16. What I want to do is I want to look at the story then I'm going to give you some steps for casting out a demon. So let's look at it. Acts 16, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. So they're still going out to the river, same place Lydia gets saved. But as they're headed out there, they're met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. The Greek, the girl who had a spirit is Numa Pythona. She had a python spirit. It's a very unusual 
This, this is usually spirits are called unclean spirits. They're, you know, to name a spirit or to define it is very unusual in the Bible. One commentator translates it a spirit, namely a python. Now, that, that means nothing to us, and we're like, what in the world? And so most commentators just say she had a spirit by which she foretold the future. But anybody reading this in Luke's day, in the Greco-Roman world, would have instantly understood what was going on here. So let me give you just a little Greek mythology so you can kind of gather what's going on. So in the Greco-Roman world, you had the Greek pantheon of gods. Zeus is kind of the top god. Uh, his counterpart, his name to the Romans was Jupiter, same person, uh, same deity that they're worshiping. So Zeus wanted to find the center of the world in Greek mythology, so he put an eagle at each end. Now, listen, none of this is true, okay? Let me just... This is mythology, okay? But this is what they would have understood. This is how we get to this. Put an eagle at each end of the earth. They believe in a flat earth. The eagles fly till they meet, and they meet at a place called Delphi. Delphi is considered the navel of the earth. So at that place, there is a temple that is built, or what Zeus does is he puts a python there to guard the center of the earth. The Greeks put a temple there to Apollo, the sun god. Apollo is not only the sun god in Greek mythology, but he's also the god who tells the future. So they have this temple here, and Apollo, according to Greek mythology, this python had tried to kill him, and so he and this python had this epic battle, python dragon, and he slew the dragon there at Delphi. So it is a, there's a temple there. He is the sun god. He's also the god of the prophetic. And the priests there would take young girls, beautiful women is what Roman historians say. And there would be more than one, but there would be a group that would be called uh, the Maidens of Apollo or the Pythia would be a name after the Python. So they would be, they would be these oracles. Have you ever heard of the Oracle of Delphi? So like... In, in history, uh, people would go to Delphi and this oracle would tell them things that um, were revealed to the oracle. Never as straight up, it's always a riddle, it's always like one, one king was gonna go fight another king and he went to the oracle at Delphi and he asked her, you paid a lot of money to go, and he asked her, you know, will I, will I win the battle? And her response was, it'll be the end of an empire. What she didn't tell him is, yours is the empire I'm talking about, okay? So, so you know, it was always kind of a riddly thing. You never really knew, uh, but, but they had this reputation. Uh, Socrates went to Delphi, and the oracle said, you're the wisest man in the world. And what would happen is, when the prophecies, because they proved true, they would, they would build these gigantic columns leading up to this temple that would be embedded with jewels and treasures and all of this. So on the seventh of the month, um, every, on most months, not every month, the, that was Apollo's favorite number. So on that day, the oracle would go down into a chamber. The temple was built on two geographic fault lines, and up from those fault lines came uh, kind of a hallucinogenic cocktail of gases. There was ethane and methane and, and ethylene, 
and they would cap it. And then when the oracle would be, in, be you know, there to tell fortunes, they would uncap it. She would sit on a tripod chair. She would get high from, from the methane gas and the ethane gas, and she would give her pronouncements. So this is, this is what's happening. They believed the smell of the gas was the decaying python, that it was from the python that Apollo had killed. So it all comes together. So now there are women that cycle through. So they're always looking for the next young virgin to be Apollo's wife, to be the, the new oracle, and the other ones move on. And probably this woman had at one time served as an oracle of Delphi. So she, as we go back, let's go back now, verse 16. When they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a pneuma pythona by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by her fortune telling. So the temple sold her to people and they marketed her as an oracle, as a Pythia who could tell people the future. All that simply to say, this girl is thoroughly demonized. This girl has been functioning in the demonic for a long time, and the spirit is a powerful spirit, and the spirit has a great hold on her. Verse 17, this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Now, a few things uh, cause us to think. First of all, she is telling the truth. You say, well, what's up with that? Listen, demons are ultimately going to tell lies, but not everything they say is a lie. Their ultimate goal is to deceive, and they can do that by building false credibility, okay? So she's following around saying, these are servants of the Most High God. Notice as well, she kept this up for many days. So Paul's knee-jerk reaction is not to the first time he sees her cast the demon out. He lets her do her thing. No doubt he feels sorry for her. No, no doubt he is concerned for her, but he doesn't do anything until it is the right time to do something. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around. So troubled is not irritated. Troubled is he is just stirred in his spirit over what she's doing and her condition and what it's going to do to the gospel and what it's doing to her. Now, now this is, here's what's so interesting. In one statement, he has such spiritual strength that he's able to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. In that moment, the spirit left her. This is sheer spiritual power on Paul's part. Verse 19, when the owners of the slave girl realized that her hope of making money was gone, their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Now, next time we're going to see what happens to them. But I want to take the balance of our time and, and just quickly talk to you about steps to delivering people from demonic activity. 
And again, I would encourage you to listen to Wednesday night's message. Let me simply say that deliverance is a part of any gospel ministry. And as believers, we have authority in Jesus' name to cast out demons. This is not the domain of, of exclusive domain of pastors. This is something every believer ought to be prepared to do. Especially when you look at our society and you see the increase of, of just demonic activity. I mean, what else can you call people to go in and shoot up a school? That's not normal. That's not natural. If it's not natural, it's supernatural. You're saying they're, they're demonized. I believe in many cases they are. And we could go on. We could name other instances of behavior people have. It's a part of a gospel ministry. Jesus said this, Mark chapter 13. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Jesus sends us out to tell the gospel, and with that comes an authority to drive out demons. If you're a believer, he has given you that authority. Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. As you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Again, it's clear. It's a part of the gospel ministry. It's not a fringe thing. It's not, and, and honestly, 95% of churches are not going to want to talk about this. And the 5% that acknowledge it's real are, are you know, most of them are going to be very careful. Most will never do it on a Sunday morning. Um, and I'm just saying that you, you say, well, I haven't heard this. Well, because there's people are concerned about what people will hear, what people will do, where they're going to go. But the good news is you've been, you've been in the book of Acts. So I doubt there's anything I could say that would scare you too much. Um, Mark chapter 16, Jesus said this, this is after he's resurrected. These signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They'll drive out demons. Now, let me give you just eight steps for casting out demons. And I would encourage you again, we, there's a James River app. And if you download the app on your phone, it's got my notes there. It will have this in there, or you can write it down. We'll have it on the screen for you. Now, let me just, let me just kind of say this as a starter, not to scare anybody, but when you're dealing with the demonic, this is really serious. So it's very important that those who are going to minister deliverance are themselves free of ungodly bondage or demonic influence. It's true for a couple of reasons, and we're going to see in a moment of scripture, a demon, when they leave, can come back because the demon's looking for a place to go. And if you're not, if you're not where you need to be, then you're opening yourself up to dem demonic activity. Uh, as well, um, there is a story in Acts chapter 19 where there's a Jewish rabbi named Sceva, and he has seven sons, and they're watching Paul do his deal. So they decide, hey, wow, looks cool. I think I'll do that. So they go to this guy who's demonized, and they go to cast out, and they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out. The demon says to them, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard about, but who are you? And he jumped on them and beat them up and sent them out bloody and beaten. So it's, it's not something 
that you want to engage in if you're not walking close to the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about direction. I'm talking about you have a legitimate walk with the Lord, and you, as far as you know, nobody's, nobody's completely perfect, but as far as you know and what you're trying to do, you're living for God. Are you with me on this? I mean, I'm just trying to lay some groundwork here. Number one, remember the individual who is demonized as a person. And I think this is really, really important. They're not a demon. They're not a project. They're not a phenomenon. They're a person who Jesus dearly loves. So because of that, and this is where a lot of people are uninitiated, let the demon run the thing and let the demon humiliate them. So I have them rolling or slithering or doing all kinds of things because the person doesn't, hasn't taken authority over the demon and commanded them to stop in Jesus' name for the purpose of delivering the person and for the purpose of not humiliating the person. As well, when somebody is being delivered, you don't have to make a scene. Shouting doesn't give you more spiritual power in that moment. Pablo Batari says this in his book, Free in Christ, deliverance is not about shouting. It is focused on discovering what it is that is giving the enemy authority to remain in that person. So number two, take authority over the demonic spirit. This is where you start. You, you start, if a spirit manifests, you command it to be quiet and submit in Jesus' name. You could say this. I command you to submit in Jesus' name, or you have to submit in Jesus' name. The 72, when they came back from Jesus sending them out, this time Luke 10, he sent 72 people out, followers. They came back and they said this, even the demons submit in your name. So the name of Jesus is very, very powerful. This is why it ought to grieve us, ought to bother us anytime we hear it used as a, as a statement in profanity. Because there's a power in the name of Jesus. There's a power in the name of God. Beyond that, do not speak to the demon unless it's to command its submission. So we don't have conversations with demons. You don't need to find out any more. From that. You don't even need to ask that demon how many are in there. You don't need to, I don't think you need to do any of that because demons, demons are liars. Jesus said Satan is a liar and he's the father of liars. So, you know, he could tell you there's two and there could be 10. He could tell you there's 10 and there could be one. I mean, you know, so you can't be basing what you do on a demonic voice and you don't want to talk to the demon. You want to talk to the person. You say, what are the, some of the signs of demonic manifestation? Let me just give you a few here real quick. Loss of control of their movements or sudden movements. Number two, disfigured face. Face just kind of gets really odd looking. Humiliating behavior, self-harm, the eyes change. Sometimes there's a, a hostility, a hatred. Sometimes there's a glassy look. Sometimes the eyes can roll back in the head. Um, pain in the chest or other parts of the body, often moving around the body. People say, all of a sudden my shoulder hurts. All of a sudden, and then you're praying for the shoulder. Oh, my leg hurts. And it can, the, it, that is a sign of demonic activity in a person's body when the pain is moving around as you're trying to pay, uh, pray for them. Nervous or, uh, speech or sarcastic laughter, supernatural strength, profane speech, 
isolation. So those are all ways in which demonic entities manifest themselves. Number three, this is really important. Find out if the person wants deliverance. This is really critical. If they don't want deliverance, you're done. You say, what? You leave them? Listen, and, and there's a reason why um, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said this, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. It's talking about your, the internal being of the person. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Now, this is it's important because we think, well, people love to be delivered, but not everybody wants to. It's hard to imagine, but it's a reality. So I, I don't know how much, I'm going to move really fast here, but I think this, this story could help you. So when I'm 21, I'm, I'm on staff at a church here in town, and it's my day to do floor duty, which is take the calls from people who are calling. And a lady calls, and she says, uh, do you believe in people being demon-possessed? I, I said, well, I do. But, you know, I start with, let's, let's start with the basics that maybe they're not, okay? And then we can get there if, if they are. So I say, yeah, I believe it. But I, I think sometimes it's, it, it, it isn't what people think it is. She says, well, my son's demon-possessed. I said, well, how do you know? She said, well, you can hear him screaming in the background, and, and you could. And I said, well, she said, do you know how to cast the demon out? I said, I do. She said, well, will you come to our house and cast the demon out? I said, sure, I will. So I get another pastor, and we go down to the center part of town. So this is in the early 80s, and so what I'm going to describe for you, it sounds crazy. It was, but it is true. We go to the center part of town. We, we meet the lady outside. She comes out, and she tells us the story that her son has been demonized for quite a while. And she says, and he's down in the basement, and he's all chained up. So we go down in the basement. It's a house that's got rock walls for the basement and then the, the rafters. And we can hear him. He's hollering. And when we come into the room... He is in his underwear, sitting on a chair, and there are, there's like a chain harness around him that goes out in four directions to the wall, and he's chained up, and she says, don't get near him, he'll break your arm. She's put, he's put people in the hospital, she says. So anyway, come to find out, I find out later that what happened to this boy, um, I, had, I had met a man in the hospital who had... Uh, broken, the, the boy who's about 90 pounds, this guy's probably 230, uh, the boy had broken both of his legs and his arm, and it picked him up and carried him. So what had happened was the boy was being molested over at Dickerson Park Zoo, in that moment prayed to Satan, if you'll come in and fill me and give me, give me supernatural strength, I will serve you. And so that's what happened, and so they put him in a boy's home. And he sent the, the leader of the boys' home to a hospital. So they, they removed him from the boys' home, and now he's with his mom. She can't control him. He's tried to jump out of second-story windows. He's been running around the neighborhood naked. I mean, it's a mess. So I said, well, 
You know, I, I, I just can't believe what I'm seeing. And I said, so like, how does, how does he eat or how do you? She said, well, I have, I have four players that come over from Missouri State or Evangel. Sometimes it's Evangel, sometimes it's Missouri State. And they each get on into the chain, football players. And they get him over to, to where he can go to the bathroom and, and, you know, hold him tight. And we try to feed him. And so um, she said, can you do anything? I said, well, we're going to pray. So I say to the associate pastor with me, he's 30 years old, I'm 21. I say, we need to put our hand on him. And he, he's like, he's like, she just said, he'll break your arm. I said, in the name of Jesus, that's not happening. So, you know, so I have anointing oil and I put my hand in. He's got his hand on my hand. I get my hand on his head and we cast out six demons. Long story short. So now all of a sudden he's just limp. I say, you can take the chains off. They take the chains off. He goes to the bathroom, they get him some food, and I'm talking to him now. And he says, I don't know why you did that. I said, what? I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I said, excuse me. He said, I don't know why you did that. I, those are my friends. I want them. And the minute you leave, I'm asking them to come back. I said, why in the world would you do that? You could have so much better life. Said, what kind of life is this? He said, you know what? I have power when they're here and they're my friends and I have more power than you. I said, well, obviously you don't because the demons are gone. And he said, I don't care. So when I'm leaving, he's singing for the demons to come back in a bizarre song, asking him to come back. They did come back. I told the mother, I said, you can't do this. This can't, you cannot do this. So I need you to call family services and I'm going to call family services to follow up your call. So I need you to call them. And so we directed her there. They institutionalized him in Nevada and he took his life. Now all that to say, you want to know whether somebody wants to, it was foolish on my part and naive. So just because you have authority to do something doesn't mean you should exercise it unless you know what you're dealing with. Number four, lead the person to Christ. You say, but the demon's not gone. Lead them to Christ. That's going to help you. That's going to be a good thing. If they'll accept Christ, that's a big win at that point. You say, but how could a person who has a demon, why would they even want to come to Christ? Why would a Gadarene demoniac with a zillion demons in him want to come to Jesus? They, you know, there's something about that. Jesus is greater and Jesus draws people to himself. Number five. And part of it is you're no longer dealing with the demon, you're dealing with the person. Do you want to be delivered? Do you want to come to Christ? Number five, discover areas of sin that are present that have led to the bondage. So invariably what happens is, not always, but generally speaking, people have let things in their life that have opened them up to demonic influence. I mean, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold, right? So if something as common as getting upset could give the devil a foothold in your life, how much more could some of these things? Let's list them out here. Hate would be one. Fear would be one. Uh, unforgiveness, rejection and resentment, occult practices. You're doing the Ouija board thing, tarot cards, palm readers, fortune tellers, uh, seances, um, those kind of things, consecration to the dead, where you say, where you swear on your mother's grave or your father's grave, and you're making vows uh, to the dead, uh, can open you up. That because the demonic is happy to 
uh, support you. Hypnotism, illicit sexual relationships, or activity um, such as you know pornography, different things that can be um, a part of that. Um, I'm not saying, now, let me just say this. If you've had unforgiveness, that doesn't mean you're demonized. If you had an abortion, doesn't mean you're demonized. It's not the unpardonable sin, okay? We all together on that? It's really important because I know there are people here and, and you've gone through that. And the Lord understands and you've asked him to forgive you and he's forgiven you and you're free, right? Okay? So I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about is people who didn't know the Lord and they've not really dealt with it. They've not been able to come to terms with it through the grace of Christ. And sometimes the enemy seizes that and works in their life, okay? Substance abuse, which again, this is, this is one of the, the things everybody ought to think deeply about. You know, marijuana can be as legal as you want it to be, but when you alter your state of consciousness, your conscious mind is a guard to your spirit. And when you drop that, the pagans, you know, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess. The pagans would, would drink to a state where they it would they'd become, it would change, it would drop their consciousness so they could commune with the gods, which are demons. So anytime we do something to, that alters our consciousness for whatever purpose, we're opening ourselves up potentially to demonic activity. That could be alcohol, it could be marijuana, it could be whatever, harder drugs. And I'm not saying everybody who's used drugs got a demon in them either. I'm just saying these are things that cause people to be demonized. And a person can be demonized mildly, moderately, or severely. So there's a continuum on that. And if you're mildly demonized, you want to get rid of the demon just the same as if you're severely demonized, right? So it, it can happen um, to a huge degree or a lesser degree. Number six, renounce the causes of demonic activity. Once you've discovered the areas, so what you're going to want to do when you're praying for, you want to talk to them. Do you, is, do you have unforgiveness in your life? Do you have things, you know, have you been, have you, have you, have you been involved in sexual activity outside of marriage? Have you, I mean, you do this inventory, not because you're nosy, but because you want to set people free. You do it because you care for people. And you want to find the causes. What, where have they opened their life to demonic activity? Once you've identified that, then you have them renounce that. Number seven, then you cast the evil spirit out. Now that may happen as quickly as the Apostle Paul, or it may take a while. I mean, I think of one time in the office, a girl, and she had come from the restaurant where she worked at, and she had, she had several demons, but it took an hour and a half. So, you know, it can take, it can take some time. And, and so once you start, it's not like, oh, I've, I've got to get over to Lambert's real quick. You know, it's not the way, that's not how that works. Once you start, you're kind of got to be ready to, to stay with it. Number eight, invite the Holy Spirit to fill the places that were formerly occupied by the evil spirit. So once they're, you know, Holy Spirit, I just ask you to fill this person's heart so that whenever that demon comes back, because they will, 
they see that the place is full. It's not only clean and swept and in order, but they see that the Holy Spirit's living in there and, and that they're honoring the Lord. So I realize, now listen, this could be your first time here, and if it is, um, this is not a typical message. Um, <laughs> of course, maybe it is, I don't know. Um, but it's a bit unusual. Listen, here's a takeaway for you. The supernatural world is real. There are angels and there are demons. It's just true. And people can knowingly or unknowingly give demonic beings a foothold in your life. And we are living in a day of increased demonic activity. It just, you can see it. You can see it everywhere. I'm not looking for a demon under every bush, but I'm aware of that, of, of, of what's happening in our society, the, the, what's going on, and you can see it. Um, this is one of the advantages of knowing Jesus and walking close to him. Because there's a power that is wonderful. You don't have to, number two, you don't have to be afraid of demons. So the, the, the wrong thing is to walk out of here biting your fingernails and afraid, be afraid of the dark. From here on, you sleep with all the lights on and, you know, pillow over your head. And you're just, <laughs> you know, that's not the way this works. The way it works is greater is he, 1 John chapter 4, than who is in me, in you, than he who is in the world, right? So he's our champion, right? And we, we, we can rest in that. At the same time, there's some of you and you do need deliverance. I just want to say that. You say, what do I do? Just call the church office. We want to help you. You don't have to be embarrassed. Nobody's going to think less of you. We just want you to know the freedom of the Lord, right? 